Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacature, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, Trent and I talk about our favorite parts of fundraising events and some of our not favorite parts. And we talk to Robert Egger, the founder of the LA Kitchen, about how his organization does an event without doing an event. Today, uh, we're talking about fundraising events. Hooray. What everybody loves to do. (laughs) Uh, Trent, how many fundraising events would you say you've been to? Uh, Off the top of my head, I'd say somewhere around 17 million. (laughs) 17 million. Give or take. I went through through because I thought I should have an answer to this also. And I I think just in Los Angeles in the last 14 years, I think I've been to almost 100 Oh, I do that in a year. Yeah, I figured that you would have. Yeah. I, I felt proud has, of myself for being at more almost a hundred, but I was like, "Oh, Trent's going to have a." It like has a slowed thousand. over the years. When I first came yeah. to Los Angeles ten years ago, I went to everything that people invited me to. I thought that I had an obligation to learn more about the organizations and to get my face out there and to make connections. Um, as I get older and as I've been here for ten years. Um, I only go to those ones that are really cool or those that I absolutely have to. So it's probably a tenth of what I once did. You said you wanted to go to events to learn about the organizations. Are events a good place to learn about an organization? For good organizations, they are. Um, Too often, they're not. They're good places to learn about who was hoodwinked into buying a table (laughs) for that organization. Okay. Uh, That's the biggest disconnect between events and and the organization is that too often they're just interchangeable. um, And you're 80% of the way in before you even have any idea what the organization does. Right. You can remember you were sitting at a circle table. You had some chicken and uh, the stage was in that one place. And then what was the cause? It's it is if you can't make it unique and tell really tell your tale, I don't know why you're having the event. Yeah. So does any event in particular stand out to you? They tend to all run together. The good run with the good and the bad run with the bad. But I do think, um, yeah, there was one last year, which was Bedzetic, which is, you know, an organization that provides legal services primarily for low income people. It was right after the Trump inauguration. And it was right around the period of time when I think things were especially perilous for for refugees, for immigrants, for undocumented kids living here in Los Angeles. And Jesse Kornberg, the CEO of Betzedek, took the stage and she just gave a speech for maybe 15, 20 minutes where she basically threw out all of the things that you'd think that she's supposed to talk about at a gala. And she talked about how she didn't really care if they raised another dollar, that they were going to be there for those kids because that's what they do. And at the end of it, with a bunch of people wearing tuxedos and a bunch of people who had paid $10,000 for a table and weren't really paying attention, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And I think that everybody was re-energized and remobilized and understood what the organization was there for and what they planned to do in the coming year. And I'm sure that in the end, they probably raised more money than they've ever raised. But it was because a CEO talked um, from the heart 
about why she did what she did and why they were going to do what they were going to do in an unbelievably difficult time. And that's something that just cuts through because it was honest. It was authentic. It was true. And it was totally not what you expected to get at one of those rubber chicken dinners because she was she was raw and she was real um, and she didn't really care what the consequences were going to be if she alienated a donor. Wow. So it was really moving. That's really interesting. I picked up on you saying like authenticity and speaking from the heart. And I think that's what moves people more than impact numbers and pie charts. A hundred percent. Just, I mean, you know, I go to enough of these things that when you find something real, it, it, it's moving. Um, I went to a fundraiser once that was for a school for the blind and we ate dinner in the dark um, and it was a sensory deprivation experience. And that was very memorable for me and the people that I went with because it was like experiencing something that you hadn't experienced before. And I thought that was a very clever way to to make that event interesting but also and different but also really attached to the mission of the organization you know it takes it takes a bold development director to propose such a thing that uh, that the high net worth individuals that go to your event might leave with the sauce on their dress because they're eating in the dark but you know if you can't find courage in this sector then what are we doing yeah i will say in that one there wasn't a dry eye or like a clean lap right in that that (laughs) as you take the pictures on the way in at that event i really i wonder (laughs) if they had done something fun like that with the pictures because i think that's a good idea today we're also talking to robert egger from la kitchen who does a different kind because they do everything a little different over there, I feel like. So they do a fundraising dinner with no no dinner, basically. It's all uh, at other people's homes. So they don't actually throw the gala. They have people do it in their own homes. Have you participated in that event ever? I have not done that one, but I have participated in more than one. Uh, we're having a gala, but we don't want you to come yes. gala. A plateless dinner um, is Which what are by far them. my favorite events. You like those? I do indeed. Oh, what do you like about them? I think I, like I, I, think I, I know. I like that I don't have to put a suit on and drive into rush hour traffic. Yeah. When I was at Charity Navigator, we found, we did a study at some point and found that for the vast majority of nonprofits, their events lose money. And now development directors and CEOs and boards will tell you that, you know, there are other goals. You know, it's a chance to um, introduce people to the organization. It's a chance to reward people who do well. It's a chance to, you know, to have your board um, invite somebody to the event. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm about to run out of these phony excuses for why to have these events. We but- used to have a joke in our office that there was virtually no way to say an event failed because there were so many things you could say you got from it. Say like, well, how do we know that that event was worth our time? They like, we gave out 40 brochures. Sure. And it was like, well, <laughs> there might be an easier way to give out 40 brochures. And then we were doing the thought experience experiment of what would it take for an event to be like that didn't work. And we we're like, it would have to be someone dropped dead at the event. That's about what yeah. most nonprofits will convince themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, the one that especially bothers me is when boards and CEOs claim that it's a reward for the staff. Um, your staff doesn't want to go. Um, <laughs> they would love a $150 voucher to go out with their spouse for dinner um, and celebrate the organization. But they don't want to put on a, a fancy dress and go and be seen by their boss and their board and have to make small talk. It's just it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So. Most organizations lose money on their events, and so you wish that most organizations would not have said events. Every failing nonprofit has a board meeting where, in order, 
Some board member proposes that they have a golf tournament. And then the next thing he proposes is that they fire the development director. And, you know, so I think every development director gives into the golf tournament because they know that the next thing on the list will be them. And 99.9% of the golf tournaments lose money. And, you know, and so I just wish that people would, would think in different ways before they have yet another event. And so if people want to eat dinner in the dark or have a stay-at-home plated dinner, I commend them for thinking outside the box and for keeping their costs low in the first place. Robert, welcome. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert is the founder and president of LA Kitchen. You have three impact areas. So it's food waste and job training and healthy food. I mean, you've got other aspects of it too, seniors and there's so much, but it's all woven into one program. Uh, can you tell us about the model you have going on at your organization? Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate that you kind of get the, the seemingly complex, but I find it like joyfully easy combination of things. I, I, I've always been so bored with the rigidity of thought that, you know, I do homeless or hunger or these kind of silo issues versus the, the joy of doing five things at once and getting actually better results because of it. But the LA Kitchen is a pretty elegant little model in that the, the charitable side takes food that would have been wasted. And of course, we focus primarily on cosmetically imperfect fruits and vegetables because that constitutes more than half of what's thrown away in America. And of course, being located in Los Angeles, it's like a cornucopia of amazing food year round. But we use that to train two very important groups, younger men and women aging out of foster care who are statistically in for a rough road, older men and women coming home from incarceration who because of ageism or big gap in work history have a struggle. So uh, the idea of putting two things that that many people think are are part of the problem and say, well, that's that's not the way I view it. I see these men and women as assets in the community that just need a doorway open for them. So it's an intergenerational approach. Now, while they're learning, they are converting all these random things into balanced, healthy meals. While they're learning, they're also teaching volunteers who by the thousands come in to volunteer. So that, again, it's this side-by-side -side approach in which we produce beautiful plant-forward meals, which we then distribute for free to very well-selected nonprofit partners with an emphasis on those feeding seniors. But then we have a for-profit business that employs graduates, buys food, and then does contracts. It might be co-packing. So, for example, we do an organic preservative-free baby food that two young women launched, and they wanted to kind of split from making it and selling it to just selling it so that we do the manufacturing for them. We just got a great contract to do grab and go sandwiches and uh, products for LAX airport. It's a good, it's a good piece of business, right? But it's not really what I came here to do, you know, do sandwiches for the airport, but it, I, it allows us to employ a lot of people, but to kind of make it LA kitchen, our stamp on it, we said, let's really see how far we can push this. So, Every year, no matter how much we chop, dice, puree, juice, zest, we still produce organic waste. We actually pay um, another partner nonprofit, LA Compost, to come and take our compostable about 40 tons a year. They turn it into dirt. They, in turn, deliver it to a growing number of school gardens or kind of anemic urban farms. And then they contract with us. We, they grow things specifically that we buy and then incorporate into the meals we produce for sale. So what that does is then when people buy it, not only are they getting a great veggie wrap, but they're knowing that they're participating in a system in which food isn't wasted. People get jobs. Volunteers are engaged. People get healthy meals. Food is composted. Kids learn where their food comes from, but also now get 
business. They're learning profit and loss and reinvestment strategies. And it's a beautiful circle. So that's the kind of way we take what might be a one-dimensional contract and kind of supersize it into an LA kitchen um, kind of system in which I hope the average customer will just be, you know, literally, I want people when they come home from LA to say, oh yeah, man, I had fun in LA, man. I went to the beach, you know, I walked on the Hollywood Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, but dude, look at this sandwich wrapper. I mean, look at this. I bought a veggie wrap at the airport and look at all of the things it does, man. LA is truly the city where the future comes to happen. That's great. So we hear about double bottom line businesses, but I feel like you're pitching me. I mean, that's kid stuff. Quadruple or what number are we at? Dude, you can keep going. In fact, you know, actually, to be honest with you, we're trying to figure it out not to be, you know, repetitive, but to really. So when we have our, our labels, I want really for people to see, man, you know, again, the, the, the triple bottom line, man, that's that's like training wheel stuff. I mean, that's that's <laughs> business 101. So. You know, the idea of really blowing people's minds on the idea of it's just a sandwich, but look at all it does, you know. Can you take us through how one person might go through the program and what that looks like from their point of view? Yeah, well, first and foremost, we partner with great partner agencies around Los Angeles that do their job well. So they they send men and women who have been stabilized in their program, whether it's housing or a variety of other issues. So by the time they end up at LA Kitchen, they're really ready for this next step in their lives. So they get referred, they come in, it's a 14-week class. That's eight weeks in the kitchen with pretty intense day-to-day work in which we are producing thousands of meals. And they're going through a variety of different learning processes so that by the time they're done, they have a good 42 solid employable skills. So it include knife skills, food sanitation. But we really want to say to employers around LA, you know, these are the skills they're coming with. It's not kind of a, a random grab bag of, you know, they learn to cook basic stuff. We want to say these are the skills they have. And so, you know, every week we have visiting chefs who come in and help teach. They oftentimes in turn offer internships to students. And that's the second part of the, the class. They go through eight weeks and then four weeks on an internship. Now, nine times out of 10, that leads to a gig. You know, somebody says, in effect, wow, man, they showed up ready to go. Conversely, while they're learning, they're responsible for providing tens of thousands of meals that oftentimes are going back to places they might have been in their life on the street uh, in, you know, first time in a drug treatment program, uh, at, you know, a halfway house. So what we're trying to do is is partner with agencies that use the meals we deliver to both redirect their hard-earned income towards their mission. Uh, but at the same time, we want the people who come through to start to heal physically from what might be decades of bad food. So what's the uh, the best thing you've eaten coming out of that kitchen? You know, the wildest thing, I must admit, we <laughs> made uh, a banana peel chutney once what? that really blew my mind. You with know, the peel. Yeah. Well, well, again, we're into radical no way. So things like we've taken uh, the pulp from juicing kale. So oftentimes you would get you get stuff that some stuff that you really need to either juice or or puree because it just it's it's it doesn't have the appeal eye appeal right. Mm-hmm. But then we had the pulp leftover, and uh, so we used that and we mixed it with masa to make kale corn tortilla chips. And kids were just pounding it; they loved it. Right. Right. This week, I was talking with volunteers, and they were peeling potatoes. And the dude was saying, you know, what do you do with this? And we started talking about composting. And he's like, well, you know, I actually fry these at home and they're really good. And it's like, wow, dude, that sounds cool. But the potato we don't, skins? Yeah. But he said, you know, we're not really into frying. So I called one of our chefs, Chef Janet, over and said, hey, you know, let's take a spin at this. Let's see what we can do. And she came back an hour later. And she had baked off with a little bit of olive oil and some really nice salt. 
And again, it was one of those revelations where suddenly we were all as a group tasting these. And I think everyone was like, we're not going to throw away potato peels anymore because this uh -huh. is, you can put this on top of a salad. You could have them, you know, kids would shoot, you know, just go nuts for them. So now we're deciding we're going to be baking our potato peels from now on. Excellent. You started this organization in 2013. I did. But you know, what's exciting is this Monday coming up the 30th is the third year anniversary of us opening up the kitchen no proper. Kidding. Yeah. So while I arrived here five years ago and started exploring LA and kind of introducing what many people thought was a too complex uh, uh, an idea, people looked at me with, as they have many times in my career, when they hear this idea of we're, I'm here and I want to take everything you think is part of the problem, food waste, felons, foster care, seniors, and I want to put them together in a social enterprise and reveal how they can all be part of a new solution. A lot of people thought that was too much or too complex. Well, that's exactly my question, because I think the the model we see a lot of times with nonprofits is, you know, start with one thing and then snowball out, grow from there. So how did you bring a big, complex idea and then get it off the ground? Like what was the... What was the process in getting the funders on board and getting the capital to open this place? Well, I had, you know, I'm bona fide. I've been doing this a long time. Yeah, I started the DC Central Kitchen in uh, 1988. And, you know, it has now almost a 30-year history of producing millions of meals, uh, generating 60% of its own earned income, doing contracts to do locally sourced scratch cook meals for DC public schools. Um, so I have a, a good history of this. And, and I came to LA specifically because everything I needed to really take this idea to a new level, but also start to focus attention on this profound issue of aging in America was here in LA. You have the supply as in food, um, you have demand in which in, in that LA is home to one of the largest concentration of older people in America. So LA had it all going on. Now I came out here with the first million dollar grant that the uh, AARP foundation had ever made. Because they were very interested in the idea of, of trying to re reimagine what a senior meal might look like, as well as the, the environment in which that meal served. Now, what's interesting is I brought probably about $5 million into L.A. from outside L.A. to build this, including a $2 million loan I got from the nonprofit finance fund for the, the construction of the kitchen itself. Um, it was a lot harder than I imagined to get um, philanthropists in LA behind it. There have been some really early and very loyal partners, for example, the California Community Foundation, the Angel Foundation, Faffinger, really great, but some of the big ones. For example, I, I haven't been able to get, you know, uh, the California Endowment, for example, or the Hilton Foundation. They're great people and, and I think admirers of what I do, but I think oftentimes people look at, at what programs like the LA Kitchen or even Homeboy do. Um, or chrysalis that employ both nonprofit and for-profit technologies and strategies. But they still kind of want to put us in this, uh, oh, what you do is beautiful. You're a saint. You feed the poor. And they don't, and, and they, they don't see the very deft and very important strategy that I think points the way towards new policy ideas. You've talked about foundation partnerships and these government partnerships, but you, LA Kitchen has also done a really good job of getting individuals to support your organization. You have, I've seen an event at LA Kitchen called Beats and Brunch, where you're inviting people in to volunteer. And then I think presumably they become supporters of LA Kitchen down the road. But you have an event coming up called Shared Plates, which on your website is called an anti-gala. 
So can you tell us a little bit about shared plates? Yeah, well, it's, a, I think, an elegant, beautiful idea that was brought to me by one of our board members, David Sue, who showed up and it was like, he's like, you know, I had this idea of instead of, because I don't like galas, no one really does, you know? And again, the idea of a party for, uh, you know, inevitably, when you try to make more money, the, the tickets for these things becomes astronomical. And I think I've always been intrigued by how we become trapped in systems. Like, similarly, why would I have a gala for a few when we can have a party for the entire city? And the idea was let people have dinners in their own home for their friends and charge them, their friends, like $50, you know, come over, I'll make a fabulous meal. We'll sit around and we'll just have a good old fashioned dinner and the money will go to LA Kitchen so other people can have a good old fashioned dinner too. And that idea of saying, wow, I mean, you know, kids in a dorm can have a pizza party. You know, people can do yoga on the beach in the morning. You can have an office, a big lunch at your office. I mean, the idea is gather around a table, re, re, you know, kind of re-explore that joy you get from just sharing a meal with someone and to have the benefit going to LA Kitchen. It's just a beautiful, elegant way to get people all over the city feeling like they're doing something. So it's a, it's a great idea, logistically. Hard to execute, though. No, actually, you, it's no. Yeah, it's, oh, that's the joy of it. Well, think about it. I mean, you know, often as we have a big gala, you have a staff of people who are working year round, year round to do a gala, right? It's it's oftentimes so much more work, and you're taking people away from mission. So we're basically saying to people, you know, look, sign up, and you have the party. You can do whatever you want. I mean, we'll give you certain things to make it nice. I mean, we'll give you kind of the LA Kitchen swag so that people understand why you're doing this. But ultimately, you're just doing what what people did decades ago, which is making a lot of, uh, you know, something they really like to make and inviting their friends over for a simple meal. It couldn't be easier. So honestly, not only is it the anti-gala in that Anybody can do it. And there's no like you're not saying to a young person, oh, I wish you could come to our, our gala, but you got to pay $250 for a ticket. You know, frankly, as much as we say it's $50 per person, you know, you can do it anything you want. It doesn't bother me. It's just I'm more interested in the community and, and the opportunity for people to get together. And it just happens to be a groovy byproduct that we get money for it, you know, but that's that's a lot of the way I do business. Like you were saying earlier about the events we host and that it, it generates support for the kitchen. The way I like to do it is I always say, if you chase money, you run forever. If you chase results, money comes to you. If we do things in which we invite people in so they see what we're doing, why we do it, the joy we take in doing it, and we invite them in, you know, we're getting all of this great result. And yeah, sure, they're going to eventually become supporters. But the goal isn't, how can I get people to come in and give me money? It's how can I get people to come in and, and share in what we do? And as a natural byproduct, they'll want to support us because who wouldn't? Talk about the first year of Shared Plate. So that was 2016, the first mm -hmm, time you mm -hmm. did it. Um, what were your expectations of that event and, and where did you end up? Well, you know, I always try and do audacious goals, you yeah. know. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, let's have 100. Let's do 100. You know, so we had, I think the first year we had 50. You wanted to have 100 dinner parties. Right, yeah. 100. Next year we had, uh, last year we had 100. Nice. This year we want 200. You know, I, I tend to be, you know, again, audacious. I think sometimes... The team is like, you know, oh, you know, but it's like, dude, so I, I, I like audacious. So, yeah. so 200 tell me dinners. about, um, I think sometimes when I talk to people, goal setting can be a panicky process because it's like, well, what if we, what if we don't hit our goals? So what I heard you say is in the first year, you wanted to have a hundred dinner parties and you had 50, but you didn't stop doing the event. No, why would I, man? People loved so it. So talk you me know? through that. Like talk, talk through like managing expectations and talking about 
you know, changing the narrative to say we want to do this and then we ended up here and that's still wonderful. Yeah. Well, in fact, you know, last year I put out uh, an annual report talking about the dissatisfaction I had trying to partner with the Department of Aging. And our annual report was disappointments and new directions. Now, how often does a, a CEO put out an annual report that starts with the word disappointment? You know, so sometimes it's important to have audacious, audacious goals, but also to acknowledge, hey, man, you know, we we went big and we didn't go all, we didn't get all the way, but we're not going home. We're going to keep working, man. You know, so and I think there's a genuine sense of like, you know, wow, they do they do four things here at once. And so that has almost given us a little bit of license to be to continue to push people's boundaries on what they think you can do. You know, one of the things I find so amazing about Los Angeles uh, and the reason I was so, I think, excited about this particular thing was, was what Jonathan Gold did, is he revealed that it isn't always the big hoi polloi chefs. It's just regular people, some old grandmother who's been cooking out in the valley for 25 years. So that celebration of the everyday cook, you know, the, the hash slinging, uh, you know, little restaurant, uh, you know, the food truck, but trying to demystify the whole food thing and take it away from this idea that it has to be this kind of, you know, nouveau art kind of thing. And, and really, again, to celebrate. So that's to me is, is the power. And it's as much as share plates is a fundraising thing. It's really about sharing kind of what Jonathan Gold did, which is like, you know, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz. Next time you go looking for your heart content, I won't look any further than my own backyard. You know, be a good friend, be a good neighbor, invite your neighbors over for dinner, get to know the people in your neighborhood, you know, go past the kind of Facebook conversation and have a deep conversation. And you have some great board members, too, that they're bringing you ideas like that. It's so wonderful to hear that this idea started with a board member and that your response to an idea like that was like, yes, let's go for it. You know, many, many organizations think the board's about money. And I've never looked to the board for, for fundraising. I mean, it's not an illegitimate sort, but I mean, I look to like most of our board members, they came on the board for a specific project. I like project driven terms versus some board member trying to come on and come to meeting for three years and try and keep up versus no, specifically, I want to work with you on this project to achieve a goal together. So um, Rachel Sumash, for example, who is with Swipes, I'm very interested in working with her on creating an intergenerational alliance between younger people and older people around food policy. She works in universities all over America. So again, an intergenerational political alliance for food policy, dude, that's it. You know, um, Daryl Twirtle, who is the CEO of St. Vincent Meals on Wheels, who has been consistently organizationally and individually has been our most dynamic and loyal partner. We're trying to double the amount of meals that we're serving to seniors, but also represent a coalition representing seniors uh, when it comes to city budgets and city contracts. So you get my point. I'm really trying to bring people on who bring ideas or open doorways, keep us honest, make sure that we're not overstepping or going into communities that have their own uh, responses. You know, I don't want to have a heavy hand and come in and just think LA Kitchen's here. We're here to solve the problem. It's like, no, man, how can LA Kitchen be a partner with existing programs in a respectful peer-to-peer -peer relationship? Yeah. Tell me how you bring on board members for project-based terms. How does that work? Well, you know, I wish more organizations thought about that. You know, in theory, you can have a board member on for a one-year, two-year, three-year term. Now, historically, again, most people think I got to get the big banker or the big this person who will give us money. And honestly, they rarely do. Um, and I found too often they just come in and want to tell me how to run business based on it's coming in every every three months and trying to find something wrong that they can correct. 
So the idea of saying, well, we can bring somebody on for term for one year, two year, three years, but why don't we actually, again, relate it more to a project so that they're really engaged. It's something specific. I'm saying you have this skill and I want that skill to help us do something very powerful. Let's do this together. Help us grow so that we can do something. So I found there's much more enthusiasm because if you get down to it, three years, I always say, man, the only thing I want to do for three years is hug my wife. That's it. <laughs> you know, so there's, I mean, I don't like to be on boards for three years unless I, I'm doing something specifically to help them take it up a notch. Yeah. I'm not trying to monitor. I mean, yes, boards have fiduciary responsibilities to make sure the budget is established and the executives meet the goals of the budget. That's That to me is the overriding thing. But after that, I mean, frankly, again, I have very different opinion than many nonprofit leaders do about the role of boards. But again, my opinion is I think more people should explore this project-driven term versus a simple three-year term based on antiquated ideas about the role of a board. And I found that many times people from the for-profit world take off their smart hat and put on their dumb hat <laughs> when they come into a nonprofit board and they tell you to do the exact opposite that they would do. I mean, now get this. this In is another what way? Thing. Well, we're, like, do you have an oh, example keep of your that? overhead low. It's like, well, wait a second. You retain managers. You know, you retain managers by training people, by paying benefits, by giving people retirement plans, but you're saying we can't. You know, so, and, and I'll be honest with you, it's, I'm a minority, but I think nonprofits should be actively involved in the political process. I mean, my attitude is, how are we going to solve problems if you're electing people who are actually making them worse? So I think we should be political. But now many people will say, no, 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 nonprofits can't be involved in politics. That's dangerous. We might not get a grant. And it's like, at the end of the day, we can't grant our way out of these problems. We can't charity our way out of hunger. Nonprofits for the longest time have complained about the wages that business plays, yet we, in effect, say to ourselves, well, we can't pay that because grants won't allow it. I think this is one of the reasons I do social enterprise business. I do not want to be a hypocrite in that I would complain about someone else while I do the very thing I complain about. Mm -hmm. So if someone wants to get involved in shared plates, I assume you would be okay with someone from not in Los Angeles hosting a dinner? Oh, yeah. No, we've had them all over the country. In fact, that's one of the joys of this. It's, it's like, you know, people have said last year, I'm going to be in New York City. Can I have a dinner there? It's like, sure, have it anywhere. Yeah. But no, I mean, just lakitchen.org is our website. And there's it's easy peasy, man, to sign up. And again, we're trying our best to give you um, a nice little box of things that you can use so that you... Um, you know, eventually we'd love to be able to say, you know, here's a couple of bottles of red and white wine or here's, a, you know, olive oils or things that would that would mitigate some of the costs associated. But again, it doesn't have to be fancy. I mean, you know, have people over for tuna melts. I mean, have a picnic. You know, it's, again, it's it's really it's it's more about the community coming together and having a, a meals and dinners together. And then as a byproduct, the L.A. Kitchen will get some resources again so we can do the same for others. Excellent. I agree. It is excellent. So, man, please, I look forward to uh, having dinner with you sometime soon. <laughs> um, we're we're going to do tuna melts. Oh, right on. And our, and our sound man over there. I mean, we'll have a party after this, man. We'll go down <laughs> and get some tacos on the street. There's excellent. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. Rock on. So I've heard you say before, uh, don't invite me to your events. I think this was on a panel in front of a bunch of nonprofits that were there to hear from funders. And someone said, how do we, how do we get to know you? Should I invite you to my event? And you said, don't invite me to your events. And I think the room gasped. 
I think organizations sometimes think of that as a donor cultivation tool. Uh, what's a better way to do it if you wanted to make friends with a foundation? Well, I'm going to disagree with the premise in the first place, sure. which is I don't think we need to be friends. Um, this is a transactional relationship. I have a certain amount of money that I have to give away every year, and I would rather give it to people who I know are having high impact in their community. So I would ask that you do good work and then find ways to tell me about it. And it doesn't need to be that you invite me to a fancy dinner where we sit around a ballroom in Beverly Hills and you show that PowerPoint and play some cheesy music. Go ahead and, and upgrade your website. Go ahead and hire a social media media marketer. Um, you know, go ahead and give me a call when you're not looking for money just to tell me I'm not looking for money, but I want to tell you about something really cool that happened last week. I'll take that call. Mm -hmm. I promise you I will. And I think that most other nonprofits, most other foundations and CEOs will take the call. We don't take the call because you don't ever call unless you're asking for money. But if you just want to tell us about something really cool, I think we'd like to know about that. So I, I just don't think we need to be friends. I'm not that likable guy. And you better hope that your gala really has someone like Jesse Kornberg from Betzedek who can espouse articulately and beautifully um, what you're doing if you're going to invite me to your event. Because if I walk out of there and say, that's a dime a dozen. I've seen that before. I don't know what their wanks their work distinguishable from anybody else. And they just spent $100,000 renting out the ballroom of Beverly Hilton then I'm less likely to take your phone call next week. So I think that, you know, in reality, the best thing for you to do is to focus on doing good work and assume that market forces will allow for that to be brought to my attention. I've got a lot of questions about what are good ways to cultivate a relationship with a uh, foundation. And but I, think, I don't want a relationship. No, no, I see that. <laughs> Guys, he's not, he's not a nice guy. You don't want to have a relationship. Um, no, but I think what you're saying is one-on-one um, -on -one touch points are far more effective than bringing you to an event or continuously inviting you en masse to something like that. The other question, though, that came up was, what do you think a foundation's role is in helping grantees get better at that or becoming more sustainable over time so they don't always have to be, you know, fundraising for every little project? Not to push back on that one, too, but I'm not sure that's my role either. You know, in the same way that, you know, I don't want the nonprofit coming in and telling me how to run my business. Um, I'm not sure it's my job to tell you how to run your business. You know your sector. You know what makes it work. Um, I'm investing in you because I think you're a world-class leader. And I think that what you're doing, you're doing with passion and purpose, and you're doing it well. And I'd like to be a part of it. If I can help, if I can make a phone call on your behalf, if I can tell people that we made that grant and we're really proud of that grant, I'd be happy to do it. If I can introduce you to people, I'd be happy to do it. But, you know, I don't have any buddy for your board of directors. And I just, you know, I, it's, I don't think it's my role to step in and try to run a nonprofit um, in any way whatsoever. So I'm happy to provide advice, but it's just as a guy who's, you know, pontificating, you know, um, randomly, you can take it or leave it for what it's worth. Um, I just don't see that it's my job to help you figure out how to be sustainable other than if I think you're doing good work, I'll write you a check every year. Do people call you and ask you for introductions like that? Or that seems like something that is rarely, that people rarely take take people up on. Yes. People call, you know, 
usually once we're a grantee, they're a grantee. Um, you know, if I don't know you and we've declined you, I'm probably not going to help you find another funder. So don't uh, give out your direct line. <laughs> you, you know, right you can do this. that. But, you know, if if we're working together to really see anybody, everybody that we fund at the Eisner Foundation as a partner, um, not as a beneficiary, but as a partner, we need each other. It's a symbiotic relationship then I'd be happy to introduce you to people. Usually it goes the other way, which is I'll call them up and I'll say, hey, I was talking to so-and-so, can I send them your name? Just because it comes up organically. But I don't have this giant Rolodex full of you know really rich people who are just dying to hear about a nonprofit because they haven't been able to figure out how to give their money away. You know, Most people have the nonprofits that they like and they've made a lot of gifts and they don't have tend to have a, you know, a big chunk laying there in their budget that if some guy called them up and recommended, they would just jump on it. Right. Yeah, there's not too many people Googling, where where should I donate? It's not a common search. Mm -hmm. How do I give away money? Um, <laughs> usually, if you have it, people will find you and help you try to figure out how to give it away. All right. Um, do you have any fundraising events coming up that you're going to? Are you done? Uh, I think I am done for the foreseeable future. You know, they usually ramp up um, at the end of the year, which, again, makes no sense. We're all busiest at the end of the year, personally, professionally. Um, at our foundation, we give away about 50% of our funding at the last board meeting of the year. Um, that's just kind of the way it works. And so why nonprofits who are scrambling to raise their money um, in time for their fiscal year insist on trying to have their events at the end of the year? Not really sure. I rarely get invited to events in August. Seems like maybe you should try that. Try an August event and make it a uh, you can stay at your house um, event. <laughs> so the and, ideal. And I will not be there, but maybe we'll send you a check. So let's say the perfect <laughs> event for you would be like an August, don't have to come, and then a really good like audio speech that's from the heart. Uh, given, given I got to say, I mean, once again, the Jesse Kornberg bad yeah, Zag speech, you yeah. had to be in the room because it really was yeah. moving. So, I, you know, um, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. <laughs> but um, but yes, in the perfect world for me, it would be uh, an August event that I don't have to attend um, where you send me um, just three really, really good paragraphs about the impact that you're having. Sounds good. Um, so next week, we're going to talk about your your favorite topic, I think. Pudding? Pudding. It's pudding. It's an all pudding episode. Uh, it's starting a new nonprofit. Oh, good. I can hardly <laughs> wait. <laughs> That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.